as we go through this section of scripture, just thinking about last week, last week we talked about the idea that God is not hidden. He is active in the world and he has chosen us to be part of that process. He reveals himself in many different ways. And we, Revelation Church, through our mission, try to reveal God to the church and to the community through three different things. One, Jesus made relationships, Jesus made discipleship, and Jesus made service. So those are three things that we'll be covering over the next three weeks. The first statement in our mission is Jesus made relationships. Why is that? Why would it be Jesus made relationships? Everything starts with relationships. Jesus is relational. For those that are Christians, we believe that God is part of a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's three separate beings all making up one God. So within that community of the three beings, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there's a relational aspect. They commune together in perfect harmony. And yet, even with that, God created humans. He initiated the relationship. How great is that? If you're reading through Scripture, the Old Testament is all about relationships. There's Adam and Eve, there's Noah, there's Moses, Abraham, all talking about the relationship between them and God. The first part of the New Testament, the Gospels, talks about the ultimate relationship that's found in Jesus, his arrival, death, and resurrection. John 15, 12, and 13 says, This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. The core to relationships is love. And love being, I like to define it as wanting the best for the other person. So in this situation, Jesus laid down his life for us. He wanted the best for us up to the point that he was willing to die for us. That's the command that he has for us, that we must be willing to die for one another as a demonstration of our love for each other. And love will underpin everything we discussed today. So then we have the next part of scripture as we're moving through. It's called the church age. It's the period that we're in right now. It's the period in which Jesus has ascended to heaven and at some point he will return. So we're in between those two paradigms right now. And so we're, as we wait, we'll eventually come to the day when Jesus will return. And this will result in the restoration of our relationship to God. And that's found in the last book of the Bible, which is Revelation. So God initiated, restored through the work of Jesus, and will bring relationships to their fullness in time. For this morning, I want to look at four different types of relationships within the church and then how God makes these relationships possible. So first we have relationship to leadership, relationship to each other, relationship to oneself, 
and relationship to the gathering, which is what we're doing this morning. And as we read through the text, it would be easy to make a sermon for each verse or even little segments of the verses. But for the sake of time and the need for everybody to go home at some point, we'll, uh, I'll be making brief statements on each one. So first we come to relational leadership. Starting in verse 12, and if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. We're on page 1048, starting with 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. Now we speak you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So give recognition to those that labor among you. The ESV translation says, respect those that work hard among you. Kind of flip that around a little bit. Those that work hard among you should be respected. If you reflect on our culture, we have definitely lost a respect for authority. Instead of asking, what is my responsibility? The statement is, I have rights. In other words, I get to do what I want and you have to go along with it. That's not what we're called to. In the church context, there is much disagreement. And usually that comes down to two things. One, it's either a biblical mandate, which is found in scripture, or it's a personal preference. If it's a personal preference, then give much grace and go along with it. For example, at some point, we'll paint, and there'll be colors that are chosen. That's a personal preference. Plus, if we can all agree that it should be white, then we can move right along. The other part is the biblical commandment. There's things in Scripture that are biblical commandments on how we should live. If we are at odds with that, then there's something that has to change. If it contradicts Scripture, it needs to change. Being able to differentiate between personal preference and a biblical command allows for the peace. That is the second part of the verses here. The peace comes because we are focused on protecting what's important, the biblical commandments of Scripture, and not focused on getting wrapped up in what color the walls should be. Now, if we should respect those that are hard at work, what should they be at hard at work doing? You see here it says, they are to lead you in the Lord. Their life should demonstrate a life that is submitted to God. Now, hopefully you can kind of appreciate the, the awkwardness of me standing up here when we have a family meeting in a little while on whether I should become an elder. But nonetheless, here we are. So how should they lead you in the Lord? Let's go ahead and turn over to 1 Timothy 1 or 1 Timothy 3 and look at the qualifications of a leader. So you look here, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires noble work. 
An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, and uh, able to teach. Not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. So there's the qualifications for a leader. There's very, the idea is that they should be, once again, people that are submitted to God. And Jesus even talks about what a leader should be like in servant leadership. So if you turn to Matthew 20 and look at verse 25, it says, Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first among you must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus calls leaders to be servants. They are to serve the people that they are in charge of. Leaders are not to abuse the power. I've heard horror stories of leaders dictating things to the people of their congregation, such as who they can date, how their finances should look, whatever it might be. That's not how a leader should be. And that's not the leaders that we're talking about today. And they definitely do not deserve respect. In fact, they should be removed because they are in direct violation of God's word. So next we come with who admonish you. Admonish is another word for provide correction. But provide correction in what? Well, as believers, we are to live a specific way. In Galatians 5, 16 and 17, it says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what's against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. So as believers, we are called to live a certain way, and that way runs in counter, runs counter to the way we naturally desire things to be. Therefore, leaders are to provide the correction through the teaching of God's word. These leaders are to provide teaching through encouragement. If you look at Titus 1, 7 through 9, it says, As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, 
holding on to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able to encourage. We'll say that again. So that he will be able to both, able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. So the role of the leader is to protect the truths of God's word. And they should do that through encouragement. And they are to share that with the people that they are responsible for and encourage them to do likewise. Next, we come to hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Love them, as I said before, is wanting the best for them, not speaking ill of them, not tearing them down to someone else due to a personal preference. John can't sing, it's true, but telling me is one thing, telling someone else is another. Address it with the person, not airing it out for everyone to hear. And in doing these things, we are able to live at peace with each other. This gives some insight into the relationship that Paul is dealing with in this chapter. There's obviously some tension between the leaders and the people of the church. But Jesus also calls us to be peacemakers. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called sons of God. Those that are followers of Jesus are to pursue peace. There's been some discussion the last couple weeks over the potential for World War III. Thank you, Spencer. Being one that uh, pursues peace is very countercultural in light of recent events. So if we're pursuing peace, it's not a passive, it's actually pursuing, finding ways to provide peace. So seeking peace is something that we should strive for. First sign of Jesus-made relationships, we come to respect and love between leaders and those that are led. As a result, there is peace. So next we come to relationship with each other. Verse 14, going back to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. And we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Excuse me. Warn is the same word as admonish from verse 12. Therefore, admonishing is an expectation for everyone because we've gone from the relationship between those that are led in leadership. Now we're talking about relationship to those within the church, to each other. So admonishing is an expectation for everyone. Paul lays this out in Galatians 6, 1 through 3. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone consider himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We need to be on the lookout for each other to point out where we're messing up. This isn't just for the leaders. And this feedback should be provided in a safe relationship. And safe meaning that both parties believe that the other person has their best interest in mind. It's not a tool for someone to beat them over the head with. 
but instead encouraging one another. Our motive, which is always usually called into question, our motive is to prevent someone from deceiving themselves to their own destruction. I know this might be an oversimplification, but think about this. If somebody was in a house that was burning down, you would say something, correct? Of course you would. So don't let your brother or your sister deceive or destroy themselves. Do something, say something. Second part of the verse, those who are idle. In the context, the people thought Jesus was returning soon and so there was no reason to do anything. We still use this excuse today. My favorite, I'm not going to recycle because Jesus is returning soon. It'll all burn up anyway, right? That's no way to live. We're not to be idle. We're to be active at work. And we're to be about the work of God in the church and in the community. So next we come to, we are comfort. We are to comfort the discouraged. Those that are fearful. In Paul's context, there was persecution. So people were paralyzed with fear, beaten down. We might not have persecution in our current context, but there is plenty to fear. Fear of aging parents, fearing of the growing independence of our children, fear of another reboot show. Party of five, anyone? No? Okay. So there's plenty to fear, right? There's lots of things to fear, but we're not to fear, and we're to encourage those people that are fear, fearful. Help the weak, weak in conscience. So there was a debate about what Christians can and can't do. In 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul talks about meat that was sacrificed to idols. Should they be able to eat it? Should they not? It shouldn't be an issue, but if it causes your brother or sister to stumble, then you should abstain from it. Another great example is alcohol. It's important to remember that your ability to stop drinking before you become drunk doesn't make you a better Christian, doesn't make you better than the other person. But instead, out of the love, wanting the best for the other person, for your brother and sister, you abstain from it so that they may not stumble. Next, we come to be patient with everyone. All of what we've discussed up to this point requires patience. Those that are idle, timid, weak, will not change overnight. It requires continual interaction. Keep in mind, there's probably somebody showing you patience. But that's the beauty of the church. Amen? We need each other. We're called to be there for each other. Makes me excited thinking about that. Just when it's done well, it's a beautiful thing. In verse 15, it says, See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. So first we have, no one repays evil for evil. 
You might remember growing up, maybe you have kids. You hear screaming in the other room. You go to check on what happened. So-and-so hit me. What's their response? They hit me first. So it's exactly that, returning evil for evil. But always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Let's go ahead and look at a story here. I think it's best illustrated in the story of the Good Samaritan. It's Luke 10, starting in verse 31. Jesus took up a question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring in olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. My purpose in showing you that, I mean, you can read that. We've all probably heard that story a number of times. But the idea is that the third person, the Samaritan, pursued the well-being of the man that was injured. The other two, the Levite and the priest, didn't do anything wrong. They didn't beat him up. They just simply came across him and said, no, I'm going to go over here and go that way. But the Samaritan came, saw what was going on, and pursued the wellness of that person. So there's an action to it. So we come to the second sign of Jesus made relationships. True accountability to and each and for each other. So we're called to watch out for each other. Next we come to relationship to oneself. We have discussed our relationship to leadership and to others which is impossible if we don't put this next section into action. So let's look here. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, going to 18. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ, Jesus. First statement, rejoice always. Not a happiness dependent on circumstances, but rejoicing that God is always in control. God is sovereign. That is, he is in complete control. He is working out the plan, his plan from the beginning. What an encouragement to the Thessalonians and to us today. The Thessalonians were suffering persecution and fear, but God was there and he had a plan for them. Next, we come to pray constantly, continual communion with God. The creator of the world wants a relationship with you. He wants to commune with you. How do we do that? Through praying, reading his word, and awareness of all all his presence around us. When I wake up, he's there. When I go to work, he's there. I say this with as much reverence as possible. When I go to the bathroom, he's there. When I come home, he's there. 
He's there because he cares. He wants a relationship with you. He is pursuing you. Please, if there's nothing else that you get from this message today, get this. God is in pursuit of you. Next, we come to give thanks. Even in the tough times, a quote I got from one of the commentaries I was reading says, temporal aggravations are temporarily part of a larger plan for spiritual well-being. Maybe I'll say that one more time. Temporal aggravations are temporarily part of a larger plan for spiritual well-being. Trials are a good thing. This is in light of who God is. He has a plan, and your spiritual well-being is the goal. So we have rejoice always, pray constantly, and give thanks. They all work together. In Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We can rest assured in the promise that whatever we face today pales in comparison to what waits for us in heaven. How great is that? Amen. So we come to the third sign of Jesus made relationships, a changed heart, a heart that is overflowing with joy. Next, we come to relationship to the gathering, verses 19 to 22. Don't stifle the spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Do not put out the spirit's fire. The Holy Spirit is at work in the church, capital C, the church globally. The Holy Spirit is at work. Do not treat prophecy with contempt. The Thessalonians were trying to stop any outward demonstration of the Holy Spirit because it was being misused. People were using prophecy to tell people as to when Jesus would return. Not much different than today. Nothing new under the sun, right? So you have the Spirit working the, prof, the spiritual gift of prophecy. These are gifts for the edification or encouragement of the church. Flip over to Ephesians 4. And looking at verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love. Let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knitted together 
by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. The work of the Holy Spirit is a spiritual gift. And we should encourage it. Believers have different gifts and they should be used to encourage the church. Not prated around for personal gain or entertainment, but instead edification of the church. Test all things. Hold on to what is good. How do you identify a fake? Best thing to do is spend time with the real thing. I don't know if you guys have seen, but there's people that are tasked with identifying counterfeit bills. And the way they do that is they don't spend time with a bunch of counterfeit. They spend time with the real thing. They identify everything about that bill, the way it feels, the way it smells, the way the print is. So if you've seen it, there'll be guys that'll hold a big stack of money and they can flip through it and they'll pull out the counterfeit bill because they've spent time with the real thing. So we need to be able to identify what is good. And then stay away from every kind of evil. If we're able to identify what is good by testing it through scripture, then we are able to stay away from every kind of evil. That brings us to the fourth point, fourth sign of Jesus made relationship, a desire for spiritual growth. Holy Spirit, show us what is good. So we discussed a number of things that we should be doing in relationship, but left to our own devices, it's impossible. So how does God make relationships possible? Verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your holy, whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. So first, God, God is a God of peace. Without God, we will never have the complete peace that we are seeking James 4.4 4 says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So, what a, so whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. There is no peace between you and God if you are seeking after the world. But Jesus provided the way for peace, to reconciliation, to a relationship. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Another way to say it is that we are justified. We are no longer guilty for the wrong that we do, but instead made not guilty before God. We are in right standing before God. That is being justified or justification. The other part in the verse here is talking about sanctification. Sanctification is God removing our sinful desires as we move closer to him until one day when we are in his presence and sin is no more, we are sanctified completely. We can rest assured that God will do this because he is faithful. 
He has never gone against his own word. He's completely faithful. I'd like to look at another scripture. I'll just give you the reference. It's Matthew 18, 21 to 25. But the idea in the scripture is that there is a man who has a crushing debt and he goes to his person that he owns the money to and he asks for forgiveness and the man gives him forgiveness and then he goes out and finds somebody that owes him just a couple dollars in comparison to his crushing debt. And he ends up choking the guy and demanding the money. But really what I wanted to focus on in sharing that is that there is a crushing debt that we all have. And the only way to receive forgiveness is to go to Jesus and ask for that forgiveness. There's nothing that this guy could have done to remove that debt but yet he was forgiven. So we have a crushing debt until we come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. Then that debt is removed and the celebration begins because you're free of that debt. No longer at odds with God. Instead, you are at peace. Have you ever paid off a large debt School loan, credit card, mortgage. How great did you feel? How much more should we be excited about the removal of the debt that we have and that is removed through the work of Jesus? That should make us pretty excited. Should make you feel pretty alive. That's because you are alive. You're truly alive. And it started with God seeking a relationship with you. Like I said before, Jesus is pursuing you. If you haven't dealt with that debt, that burden, I ask that you talk with somebody before you leave this morning about how through the work of Jesus you can be restored in relationship to God and receive the peace that he brings. So as we've been discussing this morning, Jesus made relationships demonstrate a respect and love between leaders and those that are led, a true accountability to and for each other, a changed heart, and a desire for spiritual growth in community, which leads us right into next week as we discuss Jesus made discipleship. One other thought If we can't get our relationships correct here in the church, then how are we supposed to get them right out there? Looking at Mark chapter 3, verse 31, says, His mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent word to him and called him a crowd was sitting around him and told him look your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you he replied to them who are my mother and my brothers looking at those sitting in the circle around him he said here are my mother and my brothers 
Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus talks about a deeper relationship between those that are his follower. There is a deeper relationship between believers because it's a bond that will last forever. In our culture, there is a number of degrees of separation. You have race, sex, age, whatever. But with Jesus-made relationships, we have a connection that is deeper than all of that. It's deeper because it outlasts all of that. The longevity is because of what Jesus did on the cross. He provides eternal life for those that seek him. And as a believer, you have eternal life. Those that are in Christ will be together forever. Think about that. This makes our relationships unique, which should make people outside the church go, hmm, something's different there. They're able to overcome age, sex, whatever. They're able to put that all aside because there's a longer lasting reason, relationship, peace, because of what Christ did. So I ask you, does Revelation do this well? If they do, great. We should keep on doing it. If not, then let's pursue in action a change. As a last bit of encouragement, just flip over real quick to Ephesians 4. Starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore, therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humanity or humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Jesus is what bonds us together. We, the church, are called to be unified in relationship through peace because of what Jesus did on the cross. Let us desire, through the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus made relationships that are honest, authentic, and filled with the love of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So with that, we'll move into a time of communion. And this is it. This is what we come to. Jesus did the work on the cross. And this is us remembering it. So I ask as you come forward, taking the bread, taking a juice or wine, whatever your preference is. I'd like you to think about Jesus-made relationships in light of our relationships to each other. Do we reflect Jesus to each other? Do we hold each other accountable? Do we encourage each other? If we do, great. If not, let's pursue a change. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this morning. 
A lot of words have been spoken, Lord. But whatever is uh, not of you, I pray we would fall away. And instead, what is true, what is right, what is of you, Lord, I pray that that would go forth through the work of the Holy Spirit into our hearts so that it's not just something that we internalize or that we listen to and then move on, but instead it's something that we pursue, we put into action, Lord God. It's not a bunch of words. It's easy to speak words about relationships and loving people. It's another thing to put it into action, Lord. And I pray that we would do that. I pray for Revelation Church that that would be a desire of those that are here, Lord. That you would give us the strength, the grace, and the willingness to pursue Jesus-made relationships as you have called us to, Lord. May we be able to reflect your love to each other and ultimately create curiosity for those that are looking in. What drives the people of Revelation Church to act the way they do, to love each other the way they do? Lord God, I just pray that we would be part of whatever you have. However you're revealing yourself in this community, Lord God, I pray that we would be part of that, that we would pursue that and that we would pursue that through relationships, Lord God. We pray these things in your great name. Amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene Podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.